So, we're continuing in our class. Whoa. No, we're not. We lost... Uh... There we go. We're back. Um, God has a plan for every part of your life. Now, now you're going to understand, perhaps, how many people, you don't have to, you don't have to raise your hand, the last four, five, six weeks have been wondering... Why on earth does Fred call this class God has a plan for every part of your life and not covenant theology, which is much shorter? Right? Yeah. And that's because we are now about to turn our view of covenant theology to aspects of life. This week we're going to look at marriage. Next week we're going to look at the family. The week after that we're going to look at work. The week after that we're going to look at evangelism. And then we're going to look at the church, and we're going to look at the means of grace. And we're going to look at how covenantal thinking and understanding the story of the Bible changes the way we look at marriage, we look at the family, we look at our work and our labor, and the church and its mission. Okay? Everybody with me so far? Okay. So this week is week seven, the covenant in marriage. Why should we make marriage, why should we study marriage in the context of God's covenant? You know, we're not having a marriage class. This is a covenant theology class. Why is this? Well, it's first and foremost because marriage is covenantal. We talked about this, didn't we? And if God relates covenantally, then shouldn't we? If God's relationships are covenantal, then our relationships are made to be covenantal. Right? What does that mean? Well, the way we can understand that it means is by starting with a review. Now, what is a covenant? We've said that a covenant is an agreement or a contract, right? But it's more than that. It is also a relationship. And it is more than a promise. It's more than just words. It is an oath-bound promise. And we had this phrase, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Now, to understand this and understand the nature of a covenant, and that a covenant is not just something that you get out of. Remember way back when we, week number one, we talked about what is a covenant. We used an example from the book of Joshua. You remember that? Joshua and the... Gibeonites, you remember the story? Joshua comes in with his army. They're conquering cities left and right. The Gibeonites get all scared, and they come up with a plan. You remember what their plan was? Let's get some moldy old bread and our worst shoes. We'll go to Joshua. We'll tell him we don't live from around here. We live way over there. And then he'll make a covenant with us. Right? The Israelites do, don't they? They don't ask God. They just assume they know what's going on and they make the covenant. And then they find out, whoa, lo and behold, the Gibeonites live next door. So what do they do? Well, what Joshua does is he finds Simon, the good lawyer, and he comes in and he draws up a writ against the Gibeonites and he says, we need to be uh, uncovenanted for irreconcilable differences. You have lied to us and we should be done. We're done with this covenant, right? That's not that version, right? That's not a Bible version. What do they do? They keep the covenant, don't they? 
I want you to think about that aspect as we think about marriage. What does the pastor say at the end of the marriage ceremony? What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And then what's that famous phrase? Till we have lost that in America. And I want to argue with you that we will never get that back by saying, you know, it was good enough for my grandparents to stay together. It was good enough for my great-grandparents to stay together. It's not enough to say, you know, marriage is a bedrock of society. No. What we say is, is that God works covenantally and marriage is a covenant. And you don't just come in and out of a covenant. Right? You have to think about this. So that also helps us to think about entering a marriage, right? We don't try on a marriage. You enter a marriage, you're in. That's why it requires some thought. Okay. Remember we talked about the one central theme that God has. God has one purpose in history. And that purpose is revealing His glory in His grace. And we talked about the idea of all of the aspects of the covenant of grace with Adam in the garden, with Abraham, with Moses, and the new covenant, all revolving around this concept, overarching concept of God's grace. Is everybody with me? So the whole of the story of the Bible, or at least from Genesis 3.15 on, is a story of grace. There's not sometimes law and sometimes grace, sometimes works and sometimes faith. It's one story of God redeeming a people and claiming them for Himself. How does that account for the fact, though, that Moses talks a lot more about laws, for example, than John in his Gospel? How does that account for that? If everything is one overarching theme, why are there differences? There you go. It's progressive. There is a progression within the covenant of grace. There is more and more clarity that comes throughout the story. Remember we said Genesis 3.15 is a verse about the covenant of grace. Okay? Not nearly as clear as Hebrews 8. Right? We have to kind of figure this out. And so there is progress. While there is a unifying theme, there is progress throughout the Bible. So we don't want to pretend that the Bible never moves forward with greater clarity. Because it does. Everybody with me so far? So what is it about then the covenant of grace that helps us to understand marriage? Well, first and foremost, the characteristics of the covenant of grace appear in marriage. Secondly, Remember, we did say that while a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons, it is also an intimate relationship between the parties. Does that remind you of anything? An agreement between two persons that is also an intimate relationship. What does that remind you of? Marriage. Right? Marriage is, by its very design, covenantal. 
We don't have to stick it in, shoehorn it into a category. What marriage is, is a covenantal relationship. It is so much a covenantal relationship that God chooses marriage as the way to reveal the way Christ relates to His people. Right? That's how covenantal it is. All right. So let's think then first about the characteristics of marriage that are found also in the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace, we said before, was a covenant of peace and friendship. And we looked at Isaiah 54. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. How does that relate to marriage? Anybody ever been in a marriage that seemed like it was a war? Not fun, right? No. What do they say when you marry? You should marry your best friend. Why? Because you're in an intimate relationship and it's a relation of friendship. It's not just a business relationship. The covenant of grace is like a marriage in that it is described this way. So, for example, in Ezekiel, when God is describing His love for His people, He says, When I passed you by again and I saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is God describing His taking back in a the people of Israel who have been disobedient to Him. And the image that He uses is a marital image. Right? Did you all do your homework and read Hosea 2? That's that principle, isn't it? It's God describing. Now, why would God do this? This is not a hard question. Why would God use marriage as an image like this to describe for the way He relates to us? Why wouldn't He write a thesis? What? We can understand it. We experience it. On some level, it hits us right in the gut, right? We know what this means like. Even in the best of marriages, even in the best of family relationships, even in the best of working relationships, we know what it is like to have someone fail us and for us to fail someone, right? And we know how important it is to get, let's use it this way, the proverbial second chance. We know how important it is that the relationship goes beyond the mere circumstance and the time. And so by God describing it this way, He is letting us know what the relationship is like. Now again, remember, we talked about marriage being a permanent covenantal kind of thing, right? What does that tell us about the way, not only that we relate to God, but that God relates to us? If marriage is permanent, if marriage is covenantally permanent, and God tells us that He has made a vow to us and we have become His, what does that tell us about God's relationship to us? 
It's permanent. It's eternal. You're going to wake up one morning and God says, you know, we don't like that shirt you put on, John. Sorry. Don't like that. You know, Moses, I don't like what you said the other day. I'm done. Right? Do we have to sit on pins and needles? Right? And so this gives us an idea into God's heart that when He makes a relationship with us, it is intended to be permanent. It's not... um, He's not going to vacillate between them. We see it in Hosea chapter 2. And I will betroth you to me... How long? Forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Now, remember, Hosea, the picture is what? God tells Hosea to marry who? A prostitute, a harlot. Because she's good, right? Because she's kind to him, right? Because she keeps her word to him, right? No. Well then, where's the righteousness, the justice, the steadfast love and the mercy coming from? It's coming from God, isn't it? Not from us. It's not our righteousness. It's not our justice. It's not our steadfast love. It's God's. The covenant of grace is an everlasting covenant. It is a bond of permanence. And this also helps us to understand the way God has designed marriage. So, can I get a little help here? Can someone um, read for me Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 10? Give me a hand. John. Somebody, Psalm 89, 30, verses 33 to 34. David. Malachi 2, 1 through 9. Fred. Romans 11.29, Dave Morris. So this, now remember, this is describing the covenant of grace. But if we're thinking covenantally and we're thinking about how covenant relationships are, this will help us to understand God's intention for marriage. Now, quick aside. This is another way to help us study our Bibles. You remember how we said, when you get your 3 a.m. phone call from me, and I say... What are the elements of a covenant? You will say. Is that because there's a verse that lists those? Do we only look for the word covenant in the Bible? No, we look for the substance. So that is why, practically speaking, as we apply God's Word, we can understand marriage not just by looking at the two, three, four, five passages that talk about marriage, but if we understand that marriage is covenantal, then if we understand Every passage about covenantal relationships helps us to understand the nature of marriage and the way we should act in a marriage. You follow me? Okay, Isaiah 54. Loud voice. These are barren ones who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. And let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nation and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. 
the God of the earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she was cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I will desert, I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion. So what God is doing here is he's telling through Israel through Isaiah that in spite of all that Israel has done that would justly deserve punishment and the breaking of the relationship, that the, his relationship with his people is eternal. And so he is going to go the extra mile. He is going to maintain the relationship. He is going to be the bond solidifying that relationship. Now just stop and think about that for a moment with respect to marriage. I would put it to you. The question that I hear most often that needs to be thrown out in when I do any kind of discussion or marital counseling is, I don't know how this can work. I don't know how I can make this work. The question needs to be asked, I don't know how I can not make this work. Do I have to sacrifice some rights? Do I have to put up with being abused? Do I have to um, go the extra mile? Do I have to be the forgiver? Do I have to be the one that holds the relationship together? That's what God's telling us. Okay? And you start there, and then the other party can see and respond. You don't wait for the other party to make things right. God takes the initiative. Psalm 89, verses 33 to 34. Like first and thirty one, that they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with a rod and their iniquity with strife. Romans thirty three. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to thee. See, so God is saying He's not going to be the one to break the relationship. He's not going to be the one to break the covenant. It's intended to be a permanent relationship. Malachi 2. I will rebuke your offspring and spread dust on your faces, dung of your offering, and you shall be taken away with it. So, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave it to and I gave them I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. Walk with me in peace and uprightness, and he turns 
many from religion. So the lips of a priest would guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. For you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the prophet of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despise and afraid before all the people. Inasmuch as you so what God is saying here is he's the one who made the covenant and the punishments that he's visiting on Israel are because of the permanent nature of the covenant. He can't just walk away. It is a permanent covenant. Romans 11.29, very familiar to us. God is not going to do the I love, now I love you, now I don't game. So, the reason we need to think about this is marriage is a critical relationship. It is actually, we might think in the human economy, it is the critical relationship. Because marriage is at the foundation of the family. And the family is the building block of society. And so, the Bible is always understood this. So in Genesis 24 and in Genesis 28, we see in the lives of the patriarchs, we see the patriarchs being very, very concerned about especially who their sons marry. Now, in American society today, people get really worked up about where their kids go to college, right? Pretty much. I would bet most of you parents have something to say when your kid comes to you and says, I'm thinking of taking this first job. Right? I know I got good input from my dad when I thought about buying my first car. Or my house. What the Bible tells us is, far more important than any of those things, is marriage. Now, now that doesn't mean, guys, that you should go off and... Pluck off some young lady and bring him to your son and say, guess what? You're marrying this lady. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that as we think about how we raise our children, this needs to be a focal point of the beginning of their life. Because it's a covenantal bond. And to use a cliche, if oil and water don't mix, then you shouldn't expect them to stay together forever. And so, in Genesis 24, uh, Abraham makes his servant swear that he will not take a daughter from the pagan Canaanites for his son, Isaac. And in Genesis 28, Isaac understands that and does the same thing. And he says to his son, Jacob, do not take a pagan wife from the Canaanites. We are godly people. We're going forward in a manner that glorifies the Lord. And so we need to think about this and understand it. Marriage is a critical relationship. The, God continues to reveal this to us. In Deuteronomy 7, He actually makes it a law. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Joshua warns them. There's a reason why they have this law. Because if you don't, if you turn back and you cling to these other nations and you associate with them and they with you, you will go the way of ungodliness. You have this afternoon? 
Go ahead and read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. That is the story of people ignoring Moses and Joshua. Starting with David's son Solomon. Right? When Israel comes back from the from the exile, one of the very first things that God tells them again through Ezra is don't take their daughters for your sons, don't take their sons for your daughters. Never seek their peace or prosperity. You need to be focused on God and the covenantal people. Okay? And so this, this has a very practical import. Nehemiah says the same thing. Those who had actually done this, he confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. How would you like that if the pastor did that? Pastor, I'm thinking of... of I'm thinking of getting to know this young lady. Well, is she a Christian? No, but I think I might do evangelism dating. Okay, bring bring your hair over here. And and Norm, where's my brass knuckles? Right? What did you think of that? Right? I mean, this is serious. This is a very serious thing. God takes it seriously. Now, why is it so important to be careful? It's so important to be careful because the bond is permanent, just as we have said. And the relationship affects us. Now, how many of you gentlemen here have been married more than 10 years? Raise your hand. Okay, now keep it up if it's more than 20. 30. 40. Okay, now here's my experts. You know how to do something so your wife won't yell at you. Right? There's a certain way she wants the table set, right? There's a certain way you clean the house. There's a certain way you do things. It's immaterial which way you do it, but you know your wife, right? And she affects you. And now, this sounds humorous, but back me up here, guys. You don't consciously think, I will do this because my wife will like it. You just have for so many years done it that way that that's the right way to do it now, right? It just becomes a part of you. There's nothing wrong with that. Ladies, I won't embarrass you, but it's the same way, right? Our spouse affects who we are. It's not just a relationship. They change us more than any other person on earth. For better or for worse. Isn't that what the vow says? And so this is important. This bond is permanent because it is a covenantal relationship. We cannot go into marriage thinking, oh, this is just one other convention of society. Now, the reason we're talking about this is what these are points and arguments to get riled up about gay marriage. Not because of the way congressmen vote, or not even because of what the Constitution says. It's because when you start changing the definition of marriage, you unmoor it from the reality of the universe, which is God's word, God's will, and his law. And it ceases to become what it was. So please, do not let me hear you giving political talking points about marriage. Not because they're not right, but because they're not the core. Society changes. Politics change. The Bible does it. 
We just went through, didn't we? The patriarchs, Moses, Joshua, Ezra. It's the same message. That period we just covered is double the length of our country. Think about that. Now think about what people talked about marriage 20 years ago. And think about how they talk about it now. Don't be surprised that they talk about it completely differently in 20 more years. It's got to be founded on God's Word, God's principles. Thinking long-term, thinking covenantally. Marriage is a covenantal bond. We don't like this today, do we? Now, we could find humorous examples of this. I forget which one it was because I don't follow Twitter that much. One of the Kardashians was married for like, what, 40 hours or something like that? I mean, I'm not even exaggerating. It was like, it was like a day and a half, right? Um, and we laugh and we say, oh, that's ridiculous. How much more ridiculous is it to be married for a year and a half or three years? You see, we go into marriage now as a society thinking this is a try it out, this is a temporary thing, we'll see how this works. Is that bad for society to do that? How do we change that? Who wants to go to Congress and pass a law? Everybody with me? You want to appoint a Supreme Court justice? You know how we change that? Here in this room. I found something very interesting. You all know the statistic that says that divorce is just as common among Christians as it is in the world, right? You know that? Do you know 98% of all statistics are made up on the Internet? I read that on the Internet. Um, That's not true. That's not true. When you look at people who say they are Christians and believe the Bible is true and that Jesus is God, the divorce rates are far below society. Far below society. We are the change in our society. And even if the society doesn't change, guess what? Doesn't matter. Because we are called to be separate. We are called to be God's people, to be a city on a hill, to be an example. Right? Where the idea of marriage changes is here with us. I don't know about you. I cannot get a law passed in Congress. I cannot change polling results. I can't get shows canceled from television. But I can be married to my wife. And I can be an example to my kids and my neighbors and my congregation and my friends and my co-workers. And you can do the same. So stop worrying about passing a law. Start worrying about modeling the covenantal bond of marriage. Marriage is covenantal. Jay Adams has a wonderful phrase here. He calls it a covenant of companionship. And that's really what husbands and wives are to one another, aren't they? There is a public and formal sworn promise by a man and a woman to each other. There are vows. There are promises. There are witnesses. Right? Some of y'all got married recently. You know what it's like. And it's a rigmarole, right? You got to have the attendance and you got to go get the dresses and you got to figure out what tux you're going to wear and where they're going to stand and you got to have the rehearsal and everybody knows. Why is it? 
Is that because you needed to get eight pretty ladies or ten pretty ladies standing up there? You needed five, six, seven handsome guys? Is it just because of what you're supposed to do? Why is it? Because it requires witnesses. Have you ever noticed, now you notice these things when you're a pastor, that within the wedding there are two sections that almost sound identical. There's the vows and there's the statement of intent. They really sound alike, don't they? You know this because you just got married. It's like, why is this? It's because there are promises in addition to vows. So that when you take the vow, you know that you have already made a promise to the other person. And that vow binds you. This is covenantal. The only way that we could have made this more covenantal is if we would have gone out to Fred and Rachel's wedding, and your, your mom would have loved this, Rachel, if right they had the microphone and the people, right before that, I would have bought a heifer and cut it in half and put it down the aisle <laughs> and the blood running all over the place if Fred and Rachel would have walked down the aisle, right, right through the heifer, right? It's the only way it would have been more covenantal. And, and of course, I wouldn't do that because... Rachel's mother is a, is a lovely Italian woman and she probably would have beaten me because that's what Italian women do. That's what my mother would do if I did that. But the point is, is that we've lost that sense of this is something very serious and we, we cannot move astray on this. To, to try and break that promise brings disaster and it does. Think about it. What does divorce bring? It brings problems with children. It brings financial ruin. It brings difficulties in society. It even makes it hard to have family gatherings. I mean, it really wreaks havoc on people. Should it surprise us? No. You said it. That's right. Now, we have to understand here that it is the covenant that makes the marriage not the incidentals. One of the things I tell, well, even before there was the marriage was consummated, Jewish law made it adultery to betray one's spouse after betrothal. That's the story of Joseph and Mary. They weren't married yet, but it was adultery to break the bond even before it had been consummated. It's the nature of the relationship. One of the things I encourage people when they get married, I'm involved with the ceremony as I say things like this. Now listen. If somebody forgets the ring, don't worry about it. You can still be married. Trust me. You don't have to have a ring. Right? If the flowers don't arrive on time, don't worry about it. You can still get married. If some of the guests don't come, don't worry about it. You can get married. If the solo singer gets sick, don't worry about it. You'll still be married. Why? All of those are incidental. They're nice incidentals, but they're all incidentals. It's that covenantal bond that makes the relationship. Right? There's no magic when the ring goes on or when the person uh, says magic words. It's that covenantal bond and relationship that brings us together. Marriage is covenantal because it is begun by a covenant. What's the first marriage? Adam and Eve. How has that begun? Literally. How does God start that marriage? Yeah, He takes a rib out of Adam and creates Eve. There's already a bond there beforehand. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall be one flesh. Because God has decreed it. We see it in Proverbs chapter 2. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Not husband. God. It is not to be taken lightly. We see this all the time in society, right? Romans 7 puts it very interestingly. He says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Till death do us part. Very serious. There are blessings of God within this covenant. Okay? Hebrews chapter 13 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You see, it is a picture of our faithfulness to the Lord. Marriage is a picture of that. And so God blesses our faithfulness within that covenant relationship because it is a picture of our covenantal relationship with Him. Marriage is a relational covenantal bond, and therefore, just like the covenants of God, the principle of friendship and unity are vital. 1 Corinthians 7 makes the same point. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. It is a covenantal bond that cannot be severed. This is why Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Now, it amazes me. We have entire industries built up on trying to understand our personalities and to match us with somebody else's personality. So that if I like football, my wife will like football. So that if I like to eat steak and not be a vegetarian, she likes to eat steak and she's not a vegetarian. So that if I like to drive places and not fly, she likes to drive places and not fly. I like to vacation at the beach, she doesn't want to go to the mountains. Right? And they put it in a computer and it spits it out. Now, that does make some sense. Who wants to spend the next 20 years fighting about where you go on vacation? Right? But if that's the case, why would you not focus on the single most fundamental principle of who you are? It doesn't matter if you have a good vacation place to go to if you have completely divergent views of life and family and purpose and God. Right? Doesn't matter at all. It's going to fracture right from the beginning. And you see, what Paul is saying here is not just a rule to be laid down. Now, you listen to me here. Paul lays down the rules, and you have to do this. And if you don't do it, you get in trouble with the pastor. What Paul is saying here is, what pastors say, please, don't put yourself through a life of heartache. Do you really want to live that way? You think it's bad now, it's going to get worse when you have kids. It's going to get worse when there's financial stress. 
It's going to get worse. If you don't have that foundation, everything that comes that's bad is going to be worse. And you're going to end up with heartbreak and sorrow. Don't. That's what Paul's saying. And so if we think about life covenantally, and we think about the importance of the covenant, and we think about meeting the conditions, and having the blessing, and avoiding the curse, that's a way we should think about in marriage too. Right? If we violate these principles, we should expect, not blessing, but cursing. Come on. There we go. Marriage is covenantal because it's incorporated into God's law. I mean, the Ten Commandments are only ten. And one of them is about marriage. It's not the 150 commandments. Ten. And one of them is about marriage. You shall not commit adultery. Our Lord Jesus reiterates that in Mark 10. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Paul follows on again. He says, for this you may be sure of. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. You are not following God's will and law. You have to understand, God's law is the expression of God's will and character, who God is. God is a non-adultery being. It is a part of who He is. This is not just a regulation promulgated in the heavenly register. This is a part of who God is. Now, marriage, in this sense, as we think covenantally, can be not only about us and our marriage, it can be about the way that we even witness to others and we show the importance of our relationships with God because it is a picture of a real relationship. Jesus speaks to them in parables and He says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave what? A wedding feast. Do you notice how many times in the Bible Jesus uses wedding feasts? Either He's at a wedding feast, or He's talking about a wedding feast, or He's giving a parable about there is a feast. It's because there, this is this image of our relationship with God. It is a way that we relate because we relate to God covenantally. And the best way for you and me to understand covenantal relationship is to think about marriage. Right? You all have a better idea than you did a couple of months ago about ancient Hittite treaties and heifers being cut in half. Right? My guess is your co-workers don't understand that. My guess is, even if they're not married, they have an understanding of marriage. And that is an entree that you have to talk about the Bible and relating to God and covenants. Marriage is an illustration of God's covenant with His people, of Christ's covenant with His church. And we see this throughout the Bible in Isaiah 54, verse 5. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. Jeremiah 3. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. For I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and bring you to Zion. Hosea chapter 2. I will betroth you to me forever. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul is laying out here the picture that we understand of family relationships for understanding our relationship with God. I want to give you a picture here. The Bible is actually covenantally arranged. And so um, one of my professors had put this down. It's, I think it's a, a helpful chart. It's not perfect, but it's helpful. And so, for example, you have in both the Old and the New Testament these kind of parallel blocks. There is the prologue, the making of the covenant. There is the law of the covenant. And we see that in Deuteronomy, and we see it in the New Testament in the Gospels. And then we see the history of the covenant laid out in the prophets, Joshua and Judges. That's the life of the covenant, the wanderings here and there. We see that in the Acts. And then we see various writings about the covenant, instructions. And then there is this epilogue, this consummation of God's covenant. If we view the Bible as one big book. Okay? Come on, you can do it. In Genesis chapter 2, what do we see? Yes? What happens? What event happens in Genesis chapter 2? Before the fall. A marriage. Right? What do we see in Revelation 21? Marriage. Marriage bookends the Bible, as it were. Marriage is important. Not because children who are raised in a two-parent home graduate college better and are less in prison. Yes, that's true. Who cares? Not because society will move forward better. It's because God has designed the entirety of the universe in terms of covenantal relationships. And the overarching, consummating covenantal relationship is between us and God. And God describes that as a marriage, a wedding, spouses, betrothal. And it's easy for us to understand. And so if we understand that and we think about that and we understand how important that is, then we cannot take marriage lightly like we have. We take marriage lightly, people. We do. Not just in America today, in the church today. Not just in American church today, in this room today, we take marriage lightly. We do. I do. So what we are called to do here is to repent. To pursue our marriages with yet more vigor to understand that they are a picture and an image of our relationship with God and that as we think about the importance of our relationship with God, that these two things should intermingle. If I want to be married to my wife, I have to spend time with her. I have to spend time with God. If I want to love my wife, I have to understand her, know about her, learn about her. I have to know and learn and understand about God. Right? And so... These things go together. So as we conclude here, thinking covenantally helps us to live our lives. Now next week, oh, oh, oh. they did it to me. Here I come. Next week, 
we're going to begin to apply the covenantal way of thinking to the family, which is actually, the Bible gives us a lot more detail about the differences between blessings and cursings in the family unit. And your homework for next week is to read Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6.